Well, good morning. It is so good to be with you. And I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 1. I was uh, tempted a moment ago to scrap what I was going to preach and just preach um, Habakkuk. I'm starting a Sunday school class at my church. It's literally starting this morning. Uh, someone else is kicking it off for us on Habakkuk. And, and, and what you need to know is that Habakkuk is really the, the backbone for Paul's writing to Romans, Paul's writing of Romans. H- how will the righteous live in a world like this? How will those who belong to the Lord live? And Habakkuk says, and then Paul quotes him in Romans, the just shall live by what? Faith. That comes from Habakkuk. Uh, That is the backbone of Paul's writing. Well, we're not going to talk about something else this morning. We're going to talk about the same theme, the same idea, but we're going to do that from Psalm 1. And and I want you to find that in your Bibles. We'll spend all of our time uh, there and maybe even some of your lunchtime. So um, there's an old book on my shelf. It's called, it's not a valuable book. It's not a great book, uh, but it's the title of it stuck out to me a a long time ago. And And the title of the book is... The, uh, the way made plain. The way made plain. And, and I've always been fascinated just by that title. And as I've studied Psalm 1 over the years, I think that's what we have here. This is the way set before us made wonderfully plain. Uh, the Bible has a way of doing that. Uh, God does that very clearly through His Word, the clarity of Scripture. Our, our guys in the seminary have been studying the clarity of Scripture uh, in our class, and, and that's what we see here in Psalm 1, the clarity of God's way. God is, is not hiding His path from you this morning. He's not hiding His righteousness from you. He's not hiding His love from you. He is not uh, hiding Himself in any way. He is extending Himself to you, and He is putting forth His own Son, and we've been seeing about His Son this morning. The Bible makes the way of His Son very plain, both in anticipation in the Old Testament and fulfillment in the New, and the way is made plain to us. And this morning, as we look at Psalm 1, this is looking forward to the cross and forward to the coming Messiah, and really forward to all the Psalms. Psalms. Uh, Psalm 1 is here. We, we can always ask the question. I like to ask these kind of questions. Why is Psalm 1 Psalm 1? You ever ask that question? Why is it Psalm 1? Well, because it says Psalm 1 in my translation. Well, that's not the best answer, right? Why is Psalm 1 Psalm 1? Well, God put it here and, and it's placed here. And there's a, a much lengthier, longer answer that I won't bore you with. But the reason why Psalm 1 is here in our Bibles, I believe, is because it is a matter of supreme importance. It introduces all the other Psalms to us, really along with Psalm 2. In those two Psalms, you have all the themes of the Psalms uh, really finding their foundation here in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. John Calvin, the reformer, he said that the Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the soul. The Psalms, as we read through them, what he meant by that, and he was actually quoting Athanasius, an early church father, what they both meant by this is that as we read the Psalms, we find on any given day the emotions of our heart. We find our struggles. We find where we are. We find the anatomy of every part of our souls laid bare in the Psalms. So no matter where we are this morning, God is speaking to us through His Word. We know that. He has given His Word. The Psalms are the Word of God. It is profitable for us. It is profitable for you this morning. And so we want to hear carefully the Word of God. This, this uh, Psalm is the, like a front porch to the other 149 uh, Psalms in the Psalter. Everything we find in this first Psalm is fully expounded in the rest of the Psalter. And on this front porch of Psalm 1, 
are two doors. You ever seen a a duplex, an old house that maybe has a front porch and there's two doors on that front porch and you walk into those doors, but they're not going into the same house, technically speaking, the, the, maybe the same edifice, but as you walk in, they're two very different places. Maybe on the one side, one's very clean and tidy and, and it's, it's the right house or you walk into the other one and it's just a mess and it looks like evil lives there or a teenager. But that's what we have here in Psalm 1. Psalm 1, you have two front doors. And we might see these two doors as two roads or two ways. Uh, Del Ralph Davis, I've been reading his little uh, book on the Psalms. I even have it with me this morning and just, just excellent. And uh, he, he talks about this is the way, the Psalms are the way of the righteous in the muck of life. And what we have here, he says, are not only just two ways or two roads, you also have two humanities, two destinies. That's how this psalm is given to us here. Uh, Let's look at this psalm together here for just a moment. I want to read it for us, and then we're going to uh, get as far as we can in it this morning. We may only look at the first half, and then you'll just have to guess what the rest of it is about. Um, Or your pastor will show you. But let's look at Psalm 1 together this morning. I'm reading from the New American Standard, so... Do your best. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers." The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. May God bless his word to us this morning. As we said, we encounter two ways in Psalm 1, and if you think about it this way, Both ways lead to the throne of God. How many ways are there to God? We we know the the technical, biblical, Sunday school, evangelical answer. There's only one way to God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But if we think about that question, maybe from another angle, there's actually two roads that lead to God. Two paths. And we see both paths here. There is one path that leads to God, and it is the path in the first half of this psalm. It is the path of blessing. And then there is another path that leads to God. It is also accountable to God. It will also pass by before the sovereign God, Yahweh, the God who is the creator and sustainer of all the earth. That will be a path that will lead to Him, but they will be turned away in judgment. That's what we have here. How many roads lead to God? Two. One is a path of blessing. One will be a path of what he says, destruction here at the very end. Isn't this what Jesus said? Uh, Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty three. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He calls this the wide road that leads to destruction. Matthew 7, verse 13, Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. 
Jesus is not saying that it's um, uh, hard in the sense of, you know, he is, again, like we said, hiding his salvation from us, hiding his blessing from us. But what he meant by that, as he expounds on that in the Sermon on the Mount and other places, is that what a lot of people think is the path of righteousness is actually a path of destruction. It's not to be found in this world. In that sense, not only is it hard, uh, the path of righteousness is impossible. It can only be found in Christ. God will not, you will not stand before the Lord one day and and he will say, how much money did you make? How rich are you? How poor are you? What color is your skin? Who did you vote for? What's your favorite political party? What's your favorite football team? None of it will matter, I assure you. Do you know me? Are you my son? Are you my daughter? That's what will ultimately matter. And so Psalm 1 is contrasting two roads for us. It is a vision for God, one paved with righteousness, one paved with obstinate rejection. One is filled with blessing, one with destruction. Dale Ralph Davis, he says, There is nothing as crucial as your belonging to the congregation of the righteous. Maybe you're here this morning, and you know what? You've never even considered such a question. Which congregation do I belong to? And we do not mean membership in a church. We mean, do you belong to the congregation of the righteous or the congregation of the wicked who will perish? You must consider that. You must know where you stand before the Lord. And here in Psalm 1, we have the way made plain. And in this psalm, as you might have already seen, there's a a natural flow, an outline that is quite easy to follow. Verses 1 through 3, we see, and we'll look at this in this way, the character of the godly. And then later, we'll see in verses 4 through 6, the character of the ungodly. It divides very naturally in two places. So Psalm 1 is the front porch with two doors. Door number 1 is verses 1 through 3. Door number 2 is verses 4 through 6. Let's look this morning first uh, at the character of the godly, what we saw in verses 1 through 3. And the way that is described here in these three verses is the fruitful way. It's the way of the righteous, the way of blessing, the way of divine contentment, the way of fortitude, the way of strength, the way of delight, the way in which Our loving Father desires for us to walk as His children. And let's point out just a few things about this. What is the character of the godly? Just a a few traits that we might note here in verse 1, three traits. The first are fruitful pursuits, fruitful pursuits. We see that in verse 1. And and if you look carefully at verse 1, there's three parallel units in which the expressions, as you get through it, become more intense. In fact, this is a view of the godly from what he should not be. Many times it's easier to define what something is by first saying what it is, that which it is not, which is what the psalmist does here. How blessed is the man who does not walk, nor stand, nor sit. And with each with each digression, it becomes more intense. He probably never guessed in his earlier life, or maybe at some point in his life, that he would eventually be taking up the seat of a scoffer. But how that began was walking in the counsel of the wicked. Then later, he stops on his walk, and he begins to stand. And he's standing in the pathway of the sinners. And before too long, he's sitting in the seat. This is a seat maybe of authority, a seat of teaching even. He's a seat in the seat of scoffers. 
With each phrase, the influence of the world, it becomes greater. It becomes more intense. And, and think about this, brothers and sisters. Those who think they can flirt with the wicked and not eventually marry destruction are fools. You think you can just flirt around the edges of the counsel of the wicked and it not lead to this. Psalm 1 right here alone, not to mention all the Proverbs, says that is foolishness. First, you'll notice he says, this man is blessed. The word blessed, on one, in one sense, it might mean happy or fortunate, uh, but, but it's deeper than that. It's more than that. It's irrespective of circumstances or feelings. It, it, it doesn't mean how you feel this morning. We may not feel blessed. We may not feel hashtag blessed. We may feel tired. Might feel worn out. Might feel distraught, depressed, angry. This is characteristic of one's life. This is the the banner that is over a person's life, not just how I feel this morning. It's irrespective of circumstances. This blessing comes uh, from obedience to the way of righteous to the way of righteousness, which also includes avoiding the path of destruction. It's a both and. This is who they are, but this is also characterizes how they walk in this world. It's the fruitful disposition of the believer. Uh, this verse has exposition uh, in more detail in other psalms. As we said, this introduces other psalms, places like Psalm 128. You don't need to turn there. But Psalm 128 expounds on this idea. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. When you shall eat the fruit of your hand, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Jesus said, as you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, content, truly blessed. To be blessed is to enjoy God's favor, which comes on this side of the cross and what everything in the Old Testament was anticipating. It comes by knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There is no blessing outside of that. If you are staking your happiness today in anything else, it is a fool's errand. You must come to grips with that. Why are you spending so much time buying things and selling things and giving your brain capital and your heart's pleasures to things that will not give you life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. He says here, they, they do not walk in the counsel of the wicked or, or the ungodly. This means he avoids the blessed person here, the believer, avoids the philosophies and ideas that are antithetical to what God says is true. Don't surround yourself and your own thinking and your mind with those kind of things. The, the righteous man has a worldview that is shaped and influenced by what God says in his word. This doesn't mean that we're ignorant ostriches with our heads stuck in the sand. We, we might be aware of what's going on in the world. We might even read such things and, and be attuned. And these two fingers are always on the pulse of the culture. But we're not shaped by it. He may be aware of their ideas. He may have studied them at some point in his education. But the issue here in this verse, he does not walk in them. More specifically, he does not walk in their counsel. Jesus said 
something very similar. Be in the world, but not of the world, right? The Scripture is full of examples of men and people who have listened to foolish counsel. We see it first in the garden, Genesis 3. We see it in 1 Kings chapter 12. King Rehoboam listened to the foolish counselors around him, and he brought judgment on himself and the people. I love the picture of Solomon teaching his, his sons uh, to avoid foolish counsel in Proverbs 1. My son, hear my son your father's instruction. Do you think Solomon is aware of the deep agony of what it means and the painful remembrances of giving your heart to those who will turn you away in their counsel from God and His Word? you think he knows something about that? May I ask you this morning, who are your counselors? Who are the voices that you listen to? If any counsel we receive contradicts or opposes the Word of God, this may sound like a foreign tongue to you, but it is the counsel of the wicked. They may come with a big smile on their face. They may even uh, come with credentials behind their name. But if it opposes God's word, it is, rest assured, it is the counsel of the wicked. They may be nice. They may have done nice things for you and your family. They may have helped you discover your inner child or, or something, whatever that is. Mine's always screaming. But it's the counsel of the wicked. Psalm 119, verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Next, the righteous man avoids the path of sinners. This means he does not practice what they practice. His actions are different. There is a different quality about his life. This doesn't mean that we're to avoid all intersections in life and business and everything else with with those who do not believe like we do. We're not saying that. Paul even imagines a scenario for that to happen. He says you would have to get in a rocket and go to the moon. He doesn't say it in those words, but that's the same point he's making. The path of sinners, you you probably, some of you know this, if you've lived long enough, you'll, you'll know this. You don't have to live very long to figure this out. The path of sinners is a road of hardship and destruction. Proverbs 13, 15, the the way of the transgressor is, do you know it? Hard. Some of you know it, right? We we see this illustrated in, in Israel's disobedience in Hosea chapter 10, verse 13. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your way. Are you doing that this morning? This is the experience of us all without Christ, without the Messiah. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All all of us, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, his own path, his own choices, his own thoughts. But the Lord has caused our iniquities to fall on him, the Messiah, Jesus. Don't walk with the wicked. Don't flirt with the wicked or you will soon be married to destruction. Listen to what Proverbs says. Proverbs 2 verse 20. So will, you will walk in the way of good men and keep to the good paths of the righteous. Proverbs 4 verse 14. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it. Pass on. Proverbs 4 verse 24. Put away from you a deceitful mouth. Put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead. 
And let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Next, the righteous man here in this verse avoids the seat of scoffers. You you see the, the digression, as we said. In fact, if you think about this, we're saying from the this just occurred to me, from the vantage point of, of, of heaven or God's word, we see the digression. We see the, the slow burn, which is leading to destruction. But if you flip that around from the unbeliever's standpoint, this might actually be a promotion, right? He was just flirting around in the outskirts of these ideas and thoughts. Eventually, he's taking up the seat of authority and, and all of these things. So from his perspective, it just only makes sense. But he must, the righteous man must avoid the seat of the scoffers. He avoids influential and close relationships with blasphemers, atheists, those who, uh, I do not mean some class of people in America, I just mean those who would say there is no God because only the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. Those who would be mockers of truth and righteousness, those who would mock Christ, those who would mock the way. This doesn't mean that he, he cannot know them or live next to them or even have certain aspects of, of work and education that intersects with them. They, but what is, in, what is being said here, they are not his intimate friends. They are not the intimate friends of the righteous. They're not the, the, those who are having the most influence on them. In fact, they're not his intimate friends. They are his mission field. In fact, we are not to avoid their company, but we are to make fruitful use of our time with them. For our Lord was a friend to sinners, and he was continually pointing sinners to himself and to know God the Father in the power of the Spirit through Jesus Christ. Who are these scoffers? Calvin called them sinners without restraint. The Scripture clearly defines a number of characteristics associated with these scoffers. Uh, Proverbs 13.1, a scoffer is one who does not listen to the correction of his father and is therefore arrogant. Proverbs 15, verse 12, a scoffer does not love the one who reproves him. He will not go to the wise. Uh, Proverbs 24, uh, 21, verse 24, says that a scoffer is motivated by insolent pride. Psalm 119, verse 51, says the, they are persecutors of God's people. A scoffer may achieve great fame. He may receive the applause of men. He may enjoy a seat of prestige. But Proverbs 19, verse 29 says, They will receive their judgment. Judgments are prepared for scoffers like blows for the back of a fool. The righteous man will avoid these philosophies, these practices, these associations. He will have a fruitful disposition. Now, however, if we stopped our study this morning at verse 1, we would have an unbalanced picture of the righteous. We, we would have only really what is here as a negative portrait. It's a, it's, it's a negative uh, print. Verse 1 is, is, if you think about it this way, is what he seeks to put off. It's who God has made him as son or daughter, but it is also the continual pursuit of the righteous, of the believer. So this is what, verse 1, we seek to put off, but verse 2 is what he puts on. It's what he pursues. And so we saw fruitful pursuits, and now we see a fruitful focus there in verse 2. But notice that fruitful focus. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. This is the fruit's focus. He reads and he relishes 
the Word of God. He throws off the influences of the world. He has made meditation of the Word his delight. He uses that word there. He says, it is his delight. What, what delights you? What, what do you take pleasure in? The word is used 24 times in the Psalms. Ten of those times are used just in Psalm 119. And Psalm 119 is all about the word of God. Where the excellencies of God's word are remembered and rehearsed and, and brought to memory in a thousand ways. It's a delight. It's a delight. He finds blessing, refreshment, help, correction, and resolve to follow the law, the law of the Lord. He says he delights in the law of the Lord. Now, wait a minute. What does that mean? Uh, the word law is Torah, and it's used twice here in verse 2 for emphasis. In, in a narrow sense, it refers to the legislations given to Israel. But in a much broader sense, it refers to the revealed will of God and all of His Word. In fact, all parts of the Old Testament, at one point or another, are referred to as law. It, it was law because it came from God's mouth. If we might even broaden that, we can even see that all of God's Word is His law. It, it is all His legislation. It is all Him speaking to us. This is the, the, the Word. It's the Theonoustos. It's the Second Timothy 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is a part of Him. Only politicians can separate who they are from what they say. God never does that. God is intermingled and identified with what comes from his mouth. And he tells us to hold on to every word that comes from his mouth more than we would hold on to a piece of bread. With this understanding, the law is not a burden. It's a delight. You can delight when you know that that's your sustenance, that that is your food. Charles Spurgeon, who wrote wonderfully on the Psalms, he, he has an insightful comment on this. He says, he is not under the law as a curse and condemnation, but he is in it. And he delights to be in it as his rule of life. He delights, moreover, to meditate in it, to read it by day and think upon it by night. He takes a text and carries it with him all day long. And in the night watches, when sleep forsakes his eyelids, he museth upon the word of God. And in the day of his prosperity, he sings the psalms out of the word of God. And in the night of his affliction, he comforts himself with the promises out of the same book. The law of the Lord is the daily bread for the true believer. In David's day... How small was the volume of inspiration, for they had scarcely anything save the first five books of Moses. How much more then should we prize the whole written word, which it is our privilege to have in all our houses? Delight, brothers and sisters, in God's word that he is speaking to us through this wonderful book. The second half of verse 2 says, and in his law he meditates day and night. It is wonderful to be a reader of the word of God, isn't it? To be able to have Bibles in our laps or on our phones and so on, and to be able to read the word of God. But you know what? Don't be lulled into thinking that reading is enough. Has it ever occurred to you? We can imagine Judas probably read the word of God. The Pharisees, we know they read the Word of God, and yet Jesus could still say to them and identify that their reading was misguided, it was misaligned, or they missed the point. Have you not read? Their answer could have been, well, of course we've read. But you see there's a difference between reading and reading with belief. The cultists can say that they read the Word of God. Blasphemers can say that they read the Word of God. 
But the righteous man, he, he meditates on it. What does that mean? He must consider it thoughtfully, carefully. It's, there's a, there's a, a desire to apply God's word. The word meditate, it's an, it's an odd little word in, in the Hebrew language. It, it literally means to murmur. It's just kind of rolling it over in my heart. The idea behind meditation is that the word of God is never far from our thoughts and lips. Now, meditation, we have to kind of rescue that word, don't we? There's some words we have to rescue, um, kind of like Christian. Um, but there's words that we have to rescue, and, and it, they get defiled, and they get spun into all sorts of directions in our culture. Now, meditation does not mean that we disengage our minds and we fall into a trance. That's not biblical meditation. Meditation is really a, a deep and thoughtful consideration of what we've read and what we've heard. Give consideration and with a focus toward obedience. By taking in His Word and meditating upon it, its truths, our outlook on all things becomes fruitful. Because then we see God, and we see His creation, and we see the need of mankind and the, the way God wants us to see it. Spurgeon goes on, he says, Perhaps some of you can claim a sort of negative purity. Because you do not walk in the way of the ungodly. Can we claim that? I'm right there with you, brother, on verse 1. We we do not, our family, we lock it down. We do not go in those places. We do not do those things. We we have it locked down. That's what Spurgeon says. That's That's a negative purity because you can say, I don't walk in the way of the ungodly. But let me ask you, Spurgeon says, is your delight in the law of God? Fruitful pursuits, a fruitful focus and a fruitful strength. Fruitful strength. Or as they say in Huntsville, strength. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The righteous will prosper because they have been strengthened and fortified by the Lord. The psalmist uses here a simile to illustrate how the righteous will be unwavering. Notice, just careful, let's just meditate on this verse for a moment. Notice he is not a wild tree. This is a tree that has been chosen. It's a tree that has been considered as property. It's a, it's a tree that has been cultivated and looked after. Verse 3 says, it is a tree planted. This is not a wild Olive, this is a, a thoughtful planting. Now, here's why this might be significant, I believe, in the context here and what the rest of Scripture has to say about such things. This tree didn't plant itself. This tree owes its existence to the undeserved grace of God. Now, the psalmist could have said, with some help from God, this tree planted itself. That is, the tree and God met halfway, and the tree took it from there. God started it, but the tree finished it. The psalmist could have went much further than that. He could have said, by the tree's own free will, he's sprung up from the ground without any help from above. And end of story, that's it. He could have said, through a self-caused reaction within the self-contained germination of a seed within a cone, this tree came to existence over time through a process of evolution. But you see, not all those options can be equally true. The psalmist says he will be like a tree planted. For those in the know, cow pass a participle, planted by someone else. They are righteous, and they are made righteous, and they are made to stand. They are planted there by God himself. 
They are given life by the free grace of God alone plus nothing. It's the best news you'll ever hear. That if you were to stand before God and He calls you son or daughter, it's not because of anything that we have done. It's all by His work. It's all by His grace. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. John 1 verse 12, Jesus said, But as many as received him to him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what does this mean for our understanding of Psalm 1-3? It means that if we belong to God by His grace, we will, listen, good news here, we will persevere and we will be strengthened in the strength which He supplies. We will be planted because He's done the planting. He strengthens us and calls us to do exactly and fulfills what we can, are called to do here. He will be fruitful, the righteous man or woman. He will yield its fruit in its season. Not even the smallest part, the leaf, will wither away. Uh, The Lord says this to Jeremiah's audience. Jeremiah 17, verse 8, For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green, and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. We can understand that, can't we? We're in a season of drought, both spiritually and literally. The the good news here is that it is God who sustains us through all such things. And in whatever He does, He will prosper, He says here in verse 3. This this doesn't mean outward prosperity. This is not a proof text for the false prosperity gospel. The prosperity He mentions is not mere outward prosperity. Outward prosperity is not necessarily commensurate with a satisfied soul. You can have everything in this world and still lose your soul. Jesus said that, right? It is a prosperity of the soul, an unshakable confidence in the resolve of our great God. That's the focus here. We see that expounded on in other Psalms as well. Psalm 92, verse 12. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in Him. Why has God planted you as His child? It's so that you will declare His name. Every time you take communion, every time you put the bread to your lips and the cup to your mouth, You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Every time you gather in a radical act of revolution with God's people in this world, and you declare His name and singing praises to Him, and you hear somebody stand up and open a 2,000-plus-year-old book and talk to you about it for an hour, you are doing a radical act, and that is standing in the name of God. And you are proclaiming Him. And you go out from that assembly and you, you live in this life, and you work hard, and you tend to your family, and you tend to your business, and you do that with faithfulness. And you don't do it with eye service, but you do it as unto the Lord. And when you eat, and when you drink in your home, whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God. You are declaring the righteousness of God. 
When that coworker leans over to you and says, what is wrong with you? And you say, what do you, what do you mean? Why are you that way? Let me tell you about Jesus Christ, who is everything to us and our family. Beginning in verse 4, that, that is true of the righteous. What is true of the righteous is not so of the wicked. We're quickly running out of time. Let me, let me just show you a couple of things here that you want to note. This is the second half. I'll come back in five years. It seems to be about every five years I get to come back here. In five years, we'll close out Psalm 2. But the, the second half, verses 4 through 6, is the character of the ungodly. Here's something to note here. In the, in the language here, there is a strong dis, disjoint between verses 3 and verse 4. The wicked are not so. Literally, not so the wicked. It is, it is, it is a strong, strong chasm between these two. Because... Their character is radically different. They are characterized by dead works. Verse 4, the wicked are not so. They are like chaff, which the wind drives away. I have a whole lot of stuff in my notes about chaff. I won't bore you with all that. But here's, here's something you need to know. It, it was the byproduct of a winnowing process of, of crops and all of those things. It would be thrown into the air, and it would be carried away by the wind. Something else, as you read about such things and ancient practices chaff could not be recycled it could not even be fed or was not preferable to be fed to livestock in that sense it was intrinsically dead unserviceable without substance easily carried away that's chaff calvin said for although the ungodly man rise high and appear to great advantage like a stately tree we may rest assured that he will be even as chaff or refuse Whenever God chooses to cast him down from his high estate with the mere breath of his mouth. He's characterized in this way. He's characterized by his dead works. It's at the end of it all. All that you are working for, all that you are living for, if it is not rooted in the righteousness of Christ and a life that is living to the glory of God, it will be, rest assured, it will be chaff. It will be scattered to the winds. It will not even be recycled and renewed for anything else. Dead works. Uh, Secondly, we see it's an unrighteous position. Verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Again, I have a lot of notes on what is that assembly of the righteous. It could have been the tabernacle. It could have been the the temple later on. From a New Testament standpoint, we think of uh, early on they were meeting in synagogues and then house churches, and then they began to, to meet all sorts of places and homes and everything else. And we can think even this morning, in one sense, this is the assembly of the righteous. And on one level, that's true. But I think there might be more to this. It's very possible that the assembly that he is referring to here is still future. I think that kind of goes with the context and aspect of God's final judgment here. Could be wrong. I'll correct it in five years if I am. This will be a time when all the righteous saints from every age will gather together before the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are told here that they will not be able to withstand the judgment of a holy God. And furthermore, they will be turned away. And Christ will say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. Spurgeon makes a a comment at this point, very worth of repeating. He says, all our congregations upon earth are mixed. 
Every church has one devil in it. Don't look around. He says, the tares grow in the same furrows as the wheat. There is no floor which is as yet thoroughly purged from chaff. Sinners mix with saints as dross mingles with gold. God's precious diamonds still lie in the same fields with pebbles. Let us rejoice then that in general, in the general assembly of the firstborn above, there shall be by no means be admitted single unrenewed soul. Sinners cannot live in heaven. They would be out of their element. Sooner could a fish live on a tree than the wicked in paradise. Heaven would be an intolerable hell to an impenitent man, even if he could be allowed to enter. But such a privilege shall never be granted to the man who perseveres in his iniquities. It's because of his unrighteous position. Finally, verse 6, it ends in final judgment. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This verse here is either of great comfort to you this morning, or it's of great concern. If it's not of great comfort, I hope you will be concerned, and I hope that your concern will lead you to comfort. The word know here, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The word know here speaks not merely of intellectual knowledge, but of intimate knowledge. It literally means he watches over. He knows them intimately. They are his sons. They are his daughters. Notice it doesn't say the Lord knows both. He only knows the righteous. There there is an intimate acquaintance. In in one sense, God is sovereign. He is is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows the path of of the wicked and everything else. But what he's talking about here is the relationship aspect. It's only the righteous. That could be great comfort for for you and to you in trying times and difficult places. God knows you. God knows you. He knows your need. He knows your heart. He knows where you are. He knows... How easily we are led astray, and as sons and daughters, he keeps hemming us in and bringing us back. Paul takes great comfort in this. At the very end of his life, right before his head is on the block of Rome, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, Nevertheless, Timothy, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Now we could stop there and say, well, let's just sit back, party. Relax, enjoy. On one level, that may be good. But that's not where Paul ends it either. The Lord knows those who are His, and how does He finish the verse? And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. The sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man, both in that same verse, 2 Timothy 2.19. The Lord knows us. Intimate concern, intimate care, special love, special affection. It is, at times, fatherly discipline. It is gentle correction. It is patient long-suffering. That's how the Lord knows us. But notice, not so the wicked. What will be their end? They will perish. As we wrap this up, note this about the psalm. The first word of the psalm, blessed. The last word, perish. Spurgeon said, walk with God and you cannot mistake the road. You have an infallible wisdom to direct you, permanent love to comfort you, and eternal power to defend you. The question for some might be, how do you even get on the right path? Friends, listen. 
Some of you are exactly what the psalmist describes. You might be thinking, how did that preacher know where I am? I don't, but God does. God knows your heart. He knows the waywardness of your heart. He knows how you are struggling to make amends and give an answer for your own life by your good works and your righteous deeds. But he also knows that they will not help you. In fact, the the wages of all those deeds, of all those works and all those things, the wages that you have earned in the end, it is death. Death. It's judgment. The way of the wicked will perish. But the free gift of eternal life is righteousness to you. It is Jesus Christ being Lord and Savior. He has given to you as a free gift for all who would believe in his name. Jesus himself said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Do you need that this morning? You've tried everything else. You only need Christ. And it will put everything else in perspective. That doesn't mean that tomorrow your bank accounts will be full. It doesn't mean that your troubles will go away. It doesn't mean that you will never sin again. But it means you have an advocate with a father. It means you have a Lord who loves you that has set his affections on you. It means that you have a Lord that, is, that will put his spirit within you. And he will put his seal upon you, Ephesians 1.14. And he says, this is my son, this is my daughter. No one can pluck them out of my hands. They cannot even jump out of, their own, uh, out of my hands. They are my sheep. And all who are my sheep hear my voice and they come to me. And I do give them pasture. That is what Christ promises to all who believe him by faith. If that describes you, you must run to Christ this morning and believe Everything the Bible says about him, everything, he is the true God, very God of very God. He is God stepping out of heaven, putting on flesh. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on a real cross in time, space, history. He was raised really bodily on the third day. He rose again from that grave. Some days later, he ascended to the right hand of God. If you want to keep reading, read Psalm 2. He is at the right hand of God and of the Father until he makes all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. And he will come again and he will reign over his people and with his people forever and ever. And to that point, we say, Amen. If you need to know or want to know more about what it means to follow Christ, there are elders and pastors and others around you that would love to talk to you about that. Believer, be encouraged in your walk with Christ this morning in the way of blessing and the way that God gives us in His Word. Would you pray with me this morning? Our gracious Father, You are so good to us to give us a book. You've not given us a movie or a magazine or just someone to emulate. You have given us a book, and this book tells us exactly what Your will is and exactly what You have done to redeem us from our sins And you show us the way of blessing. And you have put before us this morning by the psalmist the way of blessing and the way of the the wicked. So Father, help us this morning as your sons and daughters to not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Help me, Lord, not stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. But let this church, church's delight, be in the law of the Lord. So that we would meditate and know it day and night and be like Trees that are firmly planted by your sovereign hand, yielding fruit at the right time. 
So, Lord, that we see the goodness of your hand extended to this church and all that we would put our hands to in this world for your mission and for your glory. And, Lord, we pray that you would change the hearts of the unbelieving so that they would see their need, that you would open up their eyes so that they would believe the gospel of the free grace of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.